The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We are starting a brand new series today, kind of. Uh, Several years ago, we started a sermon series in the book of Genesis, starting in Genesis 1, called Our Story Begins. And so we've basically broken the book of Genesis up into three sections. So, assumedly, uh, if the Lord tarries, in in a few years we'll come and finish uh, the the back end of the book. But between now and basically Palm Sunday, the, the Sunday before Easter... Uh, with a break for Advent, we're going to be in the book of Genesis, and we're going to move through at what is an unorthodox clip. Uh, I don't think most of the time uh, preachers would try to take you through the book a a chapter at a time, but that is the pace that we're going to go at, and that's on purpose because really a big part of the hope here, and, and it's even kind of an unorthodox title for a sermon series in the book of Genesis. I've never seen anybody do anything like that, but the, the, when we first came into Genesis, really I, I felt this, this, this leading of the Lord to, to focus on this idea. There's so many things happening in the book of Genesis. There's lots of things to talk about, but really one of the main things I want us to come away with as we are in this first book of the Bible is a strong sense that this is not some disconnected narrative about an ancient people group in the you know, ancient Near East, right? This is, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is your history. This is the story of how it came to be that you could be brought into the family of God. This is, you are tied, and you might say, well, hold on, man, I, I'm not of any Jewish ethnicity, so I don't, I don't really understand what you're saying. Well, the New Testament makes it really clear for us that who ends up, after Jesus comes and reveals the totality of God's plan of redemption, who ends up being the children of Abraham is those that trust Christ by faith. Being a child of Abraham. And that's, we're coming into Genesis 12, the first 11 chapters, we, you know, we looked at creation, we saw the the fall and sin and, and the curse that came as a result of that. We saw Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel. And so now we're picking up as we're introduced to this guy, Abram, who God will rename Abraham. Okay, And what it comes down to, whether, whether you're connected to Abraham or not, and, and that lineage that, that God used Abraham to create so that Christ the King could come, what, what determines whether you're connected to him or not has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do with whether you have the same faith he did in the goodness and the trustworthiness of God and his plan of redemption, right? We'll get to the point where we'll see God say that Abraham believed him and so he counted it to him as righteousness. And so this is our story if we're believers today. If we're followers of Christ, this is our history. And and I'm hoping as we work through this that that's going to become more and more clear to you. All right, so that's where we are. That's what we're doing. And so what that means is uh, we're going to be reading big chunks of Scripture for the next several months every time we gather. And uh, I hope you're excited about that because we're Bible people, right? So it's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so we're going to read all of Genesis chapter 12 right now, and then we're going to work through it together, all right? So let's do that. Uh, if you're new to your Bible, as I already said, Genesis is the first book. Just flip to the front, and you'll find it there. Uh, If the screen holds up, we should have the verses (laughs) there for you if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, And lastly, I'll just say, if you don't own a Bible, please, genuinely, please give us the opportunity to give you one. We'd really like to do that. One of our favorite things, okay? All right, I'm in Genesis 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give you this land. So he, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came to Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister, so it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Praise God for his word. So that chapter starts out pretty rad and then takes a really weird turn, does it not? So we're going to get into all that. Hallelujah. The Bible, you know, that's one of the reasons I appreciate the script. I mean, I appreciate the scripture for so many reasons, but the scriptures just are not sanitized. And that's part of why I, I just believe it's God's word, man. If, if you were going to, if I was going to make something up and try to trick everyone into believing it, I would have probably scrubbed this part about Abraham, the father of the faith, you know, lying to Pharaoh. And he does it again later. We'll get there, but whatever. I'm, I'm going to have the same challenge in this sermon series that I always am because like I'm, you know, I've been looking and thinking about a lot what's coming. And so I'm, I'm going to want to like bleed over into that. So I have to, you guys got to shout me down if I do that. Don't let me do it. I got to stay in this chapter today. All right. So verse one, let's look at this. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. This is the beginning of us seeing what God was doing with Abram and how Abram responded. And I think it's fair to say that Abram's response could be characterized as walking by faith in a very literal sense, but also in, in the sense that I think we, we want to understand that principle for ourselves. Because, and, and, and I said this recently, but I absolutely do not mind repeating myself around this idea. I think Abram walking by faith is clear because he got up and went, but maybe even more so because of this line. Uh, to the land which I will show you. What I'm saying is, <laughs> what is, what is God telling Abram to do? Pull up all your tent stakes, leave everything you know, all of the security structures you have with family and everything else, and I want you to start heading in a direction, and I will give you more details as I see fit. That's not cool, God. Like, what, what's up, right? Like, how about, you know, a destination would be nice, or just a few more details. And so we contrasted this way that the Lord leads sometimes recently with uh, accounts in Acts, say, where the Apostle Paul had intention to go to this place, and the Holy Spirit says, no, go to this place, right? So a very, like, I want you to do this very specific thing. And, and, and we talked about how, I think for most of us, most of us that care about obeying the Lord, uh, we would much prefer the way Paul was instructed than the way Abram was instructed, right? I, and there's, so there's all kinds of motivations for that. One, I just, you know, maybe on the, on the more innocent good side of the motivations, I, I don't want to mess up what God's asking me to do, right? But on the other side, the kind of prideful side is like, well, I think I'm entitled to all the details, Lord. 
what, like, come on, man. What, what do you think, I can't handle it? And, and if we think about it long enough and we understand how much bigger God is than us, how, how broader his vision is and how he exists outside of time and how limited we really are, then, then we would actually then come to the right answer to that question. No, I can't handle it all, obviously. And so it comes down to trusting God's character when he maybe doesn't lead with the level of specificity that I would hope, right? If he's saying, do this, and that's all the details he's given me, if he's leading me in a direction, whether it's, it's through something like the way Abram was led, or it's just God leading us through the instruction of his word, which I would submit to you as the primary way uh, he leads us now that we have the, the totality of his word, uh, in either case, you and I both know there are some times in life where we've got forks in the road, we've got decisions to make, and it doesn't seem like we have all the details from the Lord. That can be a paralyzing and terrifying place to be, uh, but if we, if we can look at <clears throat> how God ended up dealing with Abram, and that's you know, chapter 12 is going to give us a little bit of a preview of that, Hopefully, we can, <clears throat> we can rest more assured in God's character and his promises when we have to walk by faith. We would, most of us would very much prefer to walk by sight. We know how to do that. We, 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 that I'm in control when I'm walking by sight. I'm getting to use my senses and my intellect and whatever I think I've... So, and, and of course that feels good. But that's the antithesis to what God has called us to when it comes to following him. There is an undeniable and, and inescapable element of walking with the God of the Bible that is going to be by faith. And so to the degree we can buckle up for that and then even maybe push ourselves to rejoice in it and to see that there's actually beauty in that and that I'm in much better shape walking by faith if my faith is placed in this God than I am walking by sight. right? Because I'm sure I'm not the only one in here that's goofed it up a time or two walking by sight. Probably only a couple times in your life, right? <clears throat> so I, I appreciate that from this, from this narrative, this isn't, this isn't a set of verses that's saying, this is what God wants you to do. This isn't written like the epistles in the New Testament where it's, it's addressing us directly as believers. It's just telling us what God did. But from that, we can draw this strong principle about God leading us and desiring for us to walk by faith and to trust Him more than we trust ourselves. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall, you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That last part of verse 3, I, I can't remember the exact quote, so don't hold me to this, but Martin Luther said something like that last part of that promise should be written in gold letters everywhere <clears throat> because it's such a big deal, all right? And we could, we could miss that, but really what I want to submit to you right here in this moment is <clears throat> we're only in Genesis 12. We're 12 chapters into the, the scriptures as a whole. And this is not even the first, but it's, it's one of the more prominent in the book of Genesis glimpses of the fullness of the gospel and, and the good news that was to come, God's plan of redemption. Uh, and I know for some of you, maybe, you know, we just preached through a sermon series about our, our vision and mission and values, and one of our values is we believe being gospel-centered as a church is a, is a right thing based on what the scriptures teach, and so you might be thinking, yeah, man, I don't know. I think you might be stretching. I think you want to see the gospel everywhere, and so you just, maybe you're, you're stretching it a little bit to, to say that this promise to Abram, I don't see anything about Jesus in there. I don't see anything about redemption in there. How are you getting the gospel from that? Well, <clears throat> let me read verse 3 one more time. I'll bless those who bless you, the ones who, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the key. How can it be that this nomadic tribe leader from nowhere in a, in a 
other than this going on, seemingly non-consequential time frame in history, how is it that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through this guy? Keeping in mind as well that he doesn't have any children of his own at this point. Well, because what's going to happen is God is going to be faithful to his promise. Abraham is going to have a son named Isaac, and Isaac is going to have a son named Jacob, and Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons are going to come the tribe of Israel. And then as you trace their lineage, one day there's going to come a king, a Messiah born of that people. He's going to come to the earth with a mission to save us from our sins. And in so doing, defeating sin and death, and giving all the families of the earth the opportunity to see the love of God and to turn to him in faith. That's what it's saying. You might say, well, are you sure? I'm, I'm real sure. I'd be sure of it maybe if, even if I didn't have this, but Paul also thought this. Let me read you Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, therefore recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Who's the Gentiles? That's everyone that's not of the people of Israel ethnically, okay? So that's me. I don't, well, I don't know. Anyways, I was going to crack a joke and it probably would have gone left. So leave that there. Uh, That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen to me. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Paul said, the scriptures, that that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. When? When did he do that? When he said this, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's what Paul said. That was a gospel proclamation. That was a gospel declaration. That was God beginning to pull back the veil of his grand plan of redemption, how he was going to save humanity from themselves and from the grip of death and sin. The gospel is preached in Genesis 12, and it's in a lot more places. <laughs> the, the gospel is shown to us. It's, it's, it's foreshadowed. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. One other way I see the <clears throat> elements of the gospel displayed here is in asking ourselves the question, why and for what purpose did, and that's really what I mean, for what purpose did God bless Abraham? And it's clear that God loves Abraham. God has an interest in Abraham himself. But also the answer comes in that same last part of verse 3. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. My point is, God didn't bless Abraham just so Abraham could have a happy faith party in the desert by himself or with his little family. Did he? No. God blessed Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing. And the, the gospel, that, that, that shouts the truth of the gospel to me because we go forward in the New Testament, we see the teachings of Jesus. Jesus didn't come and give the good news, train his apostles just so that they could have a happy faith party in, in Israel at that time by themselves in a little cluster. No, before the master left, he said, now the reason I've done this with you is so that you can go do it with others. I've blessed you with my presence. I've blessed you with my teaching. I've blessed you with the ability to be eyewitnesses to the miraculous power that is in me. I've done all that and not just so that you can go, cool, I got to be a part of that. No, so that you could go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So that you could go therefore and preach the good news of the gospel to every corner of creation. God always blesses in order to be a blessing. God does not shine his favor on, upon people without an expectation coming behind it that you will then share that in whatever way is possible. Like, well, I don't, why can't he just bless me for me? Because friends, the greatest blessing you're ever going to receive is finally realizing that it isn't primarily or mostly about you. The greatest blessing you're ever going to find is when you can turn your eyes outward from being self-focused and see your existence primarily. The greatest purpose you could possibly have on this planet is to be a blessing and to love other people. 
You will be most greatly blessed when that transition finally happens in your heart and mind. You will, you will fall short of the blessing that is, that is capable of being attained by faith if you only are viewing it through, oh, thank you, God, for meeting my needs. Thank you, God, for meeting me in my despair. Thank you, God, for offering me joy and hope and rescuing me from my troubles. That, that's great. I need that. I need God for me. Do you? I do. But the greatest blessing isn't in just realizing that he has the power to help me. It's that he is in helping me, empowering me to then help and be a blessing to others. This is at the very core of the gospel message. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. We're seeing the pattern all the way back here in Genesis of the way that God deals with his people, of the way that God deals with his sons and daughters. It's always in this way. And I'm really thankful for it. I think it's good for us. Verses 4 through 7. <clears throat> so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, which had appeared to him. I just want to mention this real quickly. <clears throat> it's, it's dangerous for me to even mention it, but... This, this happens, I mean, I, guys, I've been reading my Bible for a long time. I've been studying the Bible for a long time. And now I'm getting to the point where I've been teaching the Bible for a long time, right? So it's, <clears throat> but it never fails when I go back into a book like this and I spend time with it again and I, and I get in and I'm digging in it, that stuff, I, I'm like, how did I miss that? It's incredible. It, God's word is living. I just want to encourage you, man. God's word is living. And as you grow and change, and as God continues to transform you into the image of Christ, I promise you, five years from, we're going we're gonna to run Genesis 12 through 36 ragged over the next several months, okay? But I promise you, five, ten years from now, you come back to it and you're like, oh man, I don't need to read that. Pastor Vince preached on it and he preaches long anyways. Like, I know everything about that. No, you won't. The, the living word of God will meet you right where you're at. It's, a, it's this incredibly miraculous power that God it, it put into his word. It ne- it's a never-ending well of living water for us and daily bread for us. And, and part of why I'm saying that is in verse 6, where this mention of Shechem, ge- geography is so prominent in the scriptures, and I'm just going to drop this Easter egg for you. As we move through this series, Shechem is going to come up more and more. And there's going to be a point where I'm going to camp out on the importance of that geographical site. And I am, I want to say it so bad right now. And every time that place comes up between now and Genesis 34, I'm going to want to say everything I have to say about it, but I'm not gonna. If the Lord continues to restrain me, which I think he will. Uh, But I'll just give you a hint. This place is called Sychar in the New Testament. And that, the, what God does in certain places, and, the, and even the, the intentionality of things Jesus did, you could totally miss it, man. This is, why, this is why we're a church that will never abandon the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. Never. We will always read and learn and, and be taught from, as a church family, the Hebrew Scriptures. Because the New Testament makes zero sense. The New Testament literally has nothing to stand on without the Old Testament. Okay? Shechem. All right, Lord, let's get, let's get away from that before I say more. Here's what I want you to see in 4 through 7. Here's what I want to encourage you in from that. Abram's response as he comes into the land of Canaan, it ends with this idea that he builds an altar. Now, verse 8, he's going to move again. He's going to build another altar. And I just want to encourage you in this. 
There's a, you, we will hear that language much more in the book of Genesis. If you continue through your Old Testament, you'll see it tons and tons more. The idea of the people of God stopping to build an altar. And what does that, what does that mean? Well, we oftentimes think of, think of altars as a place of sacrifice. That's not wrong, but it's not just that. It's not just a place of sacrifice. It's not just a place of, of worship in that current moment. Altars are also built with earth and stone and meant to stand there as a reminder of the faithfulness of God in that time. And so now every time someone comes around or, or Abram comes back around to the same place and he sees that altar, it brings back to his remembrance the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, and, and not, not just his promises, but when he delivered on his promises. And so I want to encourage you not to get good at stacking stones necessarily, but to think about what it means to build altars in your own life in this way. You don't need an altar for the purpose of sacrifice. Praise God, right? The cross was the final altar of sacrifice. We don't thank God. I don't have to shed animal blood and hope that it'll cover my sins. Jesus is the great and final sacrifice. But altars for the purpose of memorial, altars for the purpose of memory to God's faithfulness, I think are absolutely a worthwhile consideration. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to you know, go down to the nearest river and get a bunch of stones and, and pile up rocks in your backyard every time God does something cool. But, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss this out to you to pray and think about. I'll give a couple ideas, but of what it could mean for us to build an altar, a memorial of God's faithfulness in our own lives. But I, this is in no way exhaustive. I, I'm, I'm asking you to think about it. What could it look like for you to build altars so that you're reminded of God's faithfulness when the journey gets tough down the road? So that you're reminded of God keeping his promise the next time you're tempted to think he might not, right? So here's something, and, and, and I just, full transparency, <clears throat> I wish... I really genuinely wish I have done, had done better at this over the years. I've not done a great job at this. Just when, when God <clears throat> does something undeniable, right? When he answers a prayer in a very clear way or, or speaks to us a, a word of comfort, either through his word or by his spirit in some other way, um, th- these times where God delivers and, and, and does does amazing things on our behalf out of his great mercy and love for us. <clears throat> Just the simple act of taking the time to write that down. Having a journal somewhere, a place where I'm going to record the faithfulness of God here because I think sometimes we assume, well, this was such a magnificent move of God. This was such an incredible example of God's great faithfulness. I will not forget it. But I think sometimes trusting <laughs> This, this couple pound piece of processing meat between our ears with something so great as the faithfulness of God or the specifics of something God spoke to you is, is maybe folly. Writing it down, and also that allows you to possibly hand that down as a legacy to those that weren't there to experience the faithfulness of God. Your children and their children and their children. Okay, I have to do better at this. You feel free to, to stop me and rattle my cage about this and look me in my eyes and ask me, man, are you doing better at journaling the faithfulness of God? Are you building altars in that way? I have to get better at it. I do have a pretty good memory. Just That's a natural gifting God gave me, but I, I don't want to trust that long term. I need to go backwards and write some stuff down before, before you know, because there's, there's a limit to what I can hold here, and that's true for all of us. Um, but, but having something like that, or I think another way to, to, to possibly build an altar is simply, is simply to share the faithfulness of God with others verbally. To just make a point to say, hey, let me, let me share with you what God did. Let me share with you this thing God shared with me. Because there's, in, in taking it out of just kind of the internal monologue, dialogue dynamic, and, and now making it something that you're sharing with someone else, that is... It's inviting them in to rejoice in God's faithfulness as well. It's hopefully an encouragement to them. Uh, hopefully we're not jealous of one another when God is blessing someone. Right? We should be rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. We should be thankful when God is helping and blessing his children. And so our friends and our family. So um, 
those are, those are just two ideas. I, I, you know, I could, there's many things other pro- probably that I could say, but writing it down and just speaking it out, bringing other people into the celebration of God's faithfulness, the celebration of God keeping his promises, I think are two ways that we can build altars today. I, I guess I'm not saying you can't pile rocks in your backyard. You can do that. I just don't think most of you are gonna. So what are some other ways we could build an altar? And, and, it, and it wouldn't be necessary. I'm not, I'm not even saying that's a good idea. But you know, some of you probably really like stacking rocks. You're like, oh, cool. I didn't know that was the thing I could do. So you can. Um, but friends, bottom line, what does altar building look like in your life? It should look like something. That's, that's what I'm submitting to you. Can we agree on that? Amen. Okay, let's look at verses 8 through 20 now. I think some of you are going to be shocked at how long it's not going to take me to preach this chapter. Some of you will probably build an altar today <laughs> to God's miraculous faithfulness at how short this sermon is. I hope not, but I think it might happen. All right, verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, another one, and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, I mean, it started out like Abraham, you know, Abram's like a, a romancer, man. He's like got good game with his, with his wife. But then it gets real weird and goes the opposite direction, okay? So, Sarah, you find. So, here's what we're going to do about that. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. So, please say that you're my sister. So, it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Sarah is upwards of like 60 right now, maybe a little older than that. Pastor Andrew, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, so um, there's, there's this element in the book of Genesis where people live longer, and there's theories about that, uh, and this is worth mentioning now because I'm going to have to mention it again to explain something in just a moment. There's, God doesn't explain to us why people lived longer earlier on in our story, but it's, it's possible what we understand about genetic mutations and how all that works is basically Adam and Eve created perfect, would have been genetically perfect, and then it's quite possible that once sin and death entered the world that as genetic mutations moved down through generations, uh, we, we picked up more and more problems that would have shortened the lifespan. Natalie and I were joking the other day about... <laughs> Uh, and, and don't be alarmed, like we're, you know, we love the Lord and we're happy to be here, but we were like, man, it would have been a real bummer to be Methuselah. Like, I don't want to live hundreds of years. I legitimately don't. Like, if, if God came to me today and said, hey man, pick, like, pick your time, like 79, just, I'm good. I feel like I can really do a good job loving everybody and yelling about, you know, everyone loving God for a good long time, then get me out of here, <laughs> right? That's where I'm at. Like, not... I am not trying to linger for some 500, 600, 700 years. Not this guy, okay? But uh, both Abram and Sarah lived like well past 120, right? So Sarah's roughly middle-aged at this point. We don't really know what that meant in terms of what she looked like physically, but it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is what we do know is Abram thought she was fine, and so did the Egyptians, okay? So uh, Abram was right about that. Uh, so the officials saw her, they're praising her to Pharaoh. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake, gave him sheep and oxen, donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away with his wife, and all that belonged to him. So he got the boot out of Egypt. Get out of here. Okay, so first thing I want you to know is that, that Abram's scheme here is, is a half-truth, okay? If you go to Genesis chapter 12, 20, sorry, Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, we see 
Abram does this again down the road. Uh, I guess he feels like he got away with it once. Why not try it again? But he explains that Sarah is the daughter of my father, but not my mother. So she is actually his half-sister, all right? And some of you automatically are like, red flag, right? And you're right, okay? (laughs) Don't change that. That should always be a red flag for you. But again, uh, (laughs) especially where we stand in the grand timeline now, but part of what we need to understand is uh, that when you were a small little tribe in the middle of the desert, options were smaller, And the prohibition against incest in the Bible does not come until Leviticus in the time of the Mosaic law. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why God waited that long to put that uh, safeguard in place or that, that boundary in place. But if there's something to that theory about genetic mutations and it it taking many generations for those to kind of stack up on each other, it's quite possible that in these earlier generations of humanity, incest, I mean, this also comes down to answering how you started with two people, right? And, and then <laughs> Adam and Eve, and then ended up with a whole race of humans. How, how, was, how was incest avoided? It probably wasn't, because it probably wasn't as much of an issue when you didn't have as many... Part of why we go yuck to incest, and again, don't change that, okay? That's where you need to be now. Stay at yuck. I'm not trying to talk you out of that, right? Forever. It's yucky. Ah, okay? It's like what I used to say the kids when they try to get underneath the, the sink where the chemicals are. That's yuck. Ah, don't do that, okay? Incest, just like the chemicals under the kitchen. Worse than that, all right? I'd rather you drink a little bleach than... Oh, gosh, that's really loaded. I forgot what that's tied to. I'm so sorry. That was not meant to tie into that. Anyways, <clears throat> toilet bowl cleaner, I don't care. Pick your chemical. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. It's, preaching's awesome. You realize what it's like, dude, to stand up here and like to think about every single word you say and what someone might think it means? Jeez. If you try to do this without the Holy Spirit, you are a fool. And even with the Holy Spirit, I fumble it sometimes. Thank you, Lord, for filling in the gaps. Okay, what am I even talking about now? Incest. Okay, let's get back to that. So there's a decent chance, you understand that part of why incest is a problem is you, you have, if you have the same kind of genetic mutations stacked up within a family and then those two people try to procreate, then that's where you end up with birth defects and stuff like that, right? So a lot of our perception about that being so gross, again, which is right, don't change, it, it wouldn't maybe have felt the same to people even before God said don't do that, Right? A lot of the way we think about things today in modern society is influenced by the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Whether people want to give credit to that or not, I, I mean, they can, they can do whatever they want, but the bottom line fact is much of our legal system, the way we look at things, much of the way we understand kind of morality broadly has been influenced by the word of God, to which I say, amen, right? That's really good. It's, it's, to some degree, that's restraining some foolishness and evil in the world that could otherwise be running even more rampant, okay? It's known as the common grace of God. All right, so uh, that's just, so I, (laughs) that was a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, Point being, this was, this was not an outright lie. It was just withholding some information, all right? And I'm not saying that so as to justify Abram or say that it wasn't wrong, But what I do want to point out to you is this reality. The worst part of this whole deal, of him coming into Egypt and saying, Sarah, girl, we have a problem. It's you, okay? You're fine. They're going to kill me. So here's what we need. We got to tell them, you're my sister, man. It's it's the only plan we got, okay? So the, the big problem with that and then following through with that the deceit is an issue. I'm not saying it's, it's okay to tell half-truths. The real big problem with this, though, is not the deceit. It's a lack of faith. Because Abram, as quickly... I mean, we just had this encounter with God beginning of Genesis 12. I'm going to curse those that curse you. I'm going to bless those that bless you. And in, and in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, Right? Yes, we built an altar. We moved. We built another altar. Like, we're on track. But then we, then we head to Egypt. And, and, and fear and uncertainty somehow starts to creep in where now 
instead of walking by faith, Abram's doing a lot more walking by sight type stuff. Because he sees his fine wife and he sees the Egyptians and how they conduct themselves. And he's like, okay, I got, you know, I know the Lord said all that stuff, but I got to get in here and set this up so that bad things don't happen. I got to get my hands in this and fix it. The, the, the most egregious part of this account is not that he told a half-truth about Sarah being his sister. It's, it's a lack of faith displayed in God's promises. He had direct communication from God that should have had Abraham walking around. Abram's biggest problem should have been trying to stay humble because God basically put a bulletproof vest on Abram from a promise perspective. You understand what I'm saying? God said, here's what's going to happen. Anybody that blesses you, I'm going to bless them. Anybody that curses you, watch out. And in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Abram's biggest problem should have been not walking around chest out all the time like, I'm God's favorite guy, try me. But somehow, that's not how he went into Egypt. Somehow, he got rattled enough to think, I'm going to have to go in here and fib a little bit and try to, try to massage this situation to get it to work out in my favor. And so what do we draw from this truth? I think a couple things. <clears throat> this is good news for those that are riddled with self-doubt and condemnation. Because what this shows us is that God uses imperfect people and that God sees what you will be, not just what you are right now. Do you understand God knew about Egypt when just a little bit ago he said to Abram, I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. And here's what's real wild. Check this. So Abram goes in, hatches this plot, not out of faith, but out of fear. And what does God do? He's faithful to his promise and, and, and jacks with Pharaoh because Pharaoh took Abram's wife, even when Abram was the one that set the whole thing up. You ought to be more encouraged by that than you're acting like you are. Are you getting the implication of this? Are you getting the implication of the absolute iron-clad nature of God's promises? And how little it depends on whether you can keep up your end of the bargain or not. Woo! I don't know if I see the gospel in Genesis 12. Well, keep looking! Because here it is right here again. Here it is right here again. Abram... Go, this is not a faith move, man. Look, I'm spitting. Y'all better say amen. This front row is going to get wet. Abram's not walking in faith. He's walking in fear. He's walking in, 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 in the power of his own strength. This is not Father Abraham here. This is not the father of the faith. It's not what it's looking like right in this moment, right? But what, how does God's faithfulness interact with Abram's unfaithfulness? His faithfulness doesn't shake. His faithfulness doesn't move. His promise is kept. Now, there's a fear sometimes. When, there's people that have said, if you preach the gospel rightly, that legalists are going to be really mad at you and relativists are going to be really mad at you. Because if you preach the gospel rightly, if I just stopped right there, somebody could go, oh, so it doesn't matter what I do? That's not the lesson. The lesson is why you do what you do matters more than even what you do. Okay? The point here is, what we, what we learn from this is our unfaithfulness can't shake God's faithfulness. So if what you take that for is, oh, okay, now I got Willy Wonka's golden ticket to go do whatever I want because God's just going to be good to me and be faithful. No, no, no. First of all, it doesn't mean there's not consequences. It doesn't mean, God's faithfulness doesn't mean when you sin and you do dumb stuff that it's not going to bring pain into your life. So don't, don't get that twisted, first of all. But secondly, what this leads us to is, is a gospel principle. We don't, we don't obey God so that he will do his part. We don't obey God so that he will be faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. He always has been faithful to his promises. He always will be faithful to his promises. And why then wouldn't I love him and obey him? Who else? Why would I obey someone else? Why would I trust myself over somebody like that? That's the real lesson. And that's a gospel way to frame this whole life. To the degree we can think like that and we can move like that. We're going to be walking more and more 
in the will of God, the blessing of God. I still think that's better than you're acting like it is. I don't know what the problem is. You guys ready for the picnic? I'm almost done, okay? We're almost there. So this is good news, riddled for those that are riddled with doubt and condemnation. You gotta see, man, God uses imperfect people. That means that means I can be in this thing. (sighs) Hallelujah. Okay. That's good news for me. Verse 17. Let's just look at that again. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Oh, I already said this. The mercy of God. We see the gospel foreshadowed again in this because God's protection and provision was not based on Abraham's perfect performance. It was based on God's perfect faithfulness to his promise. Okay? And that's why you, friend, that's why you got to know God's promises. That's why we are all the time. It isn't just, you know... It's not, pastors aren't always just saying to you, read your Bible, read your Bible, you know, have yourself in the word, man. It's, it's not just because we don't have anything else to say, right? Like there's a reason why we beat that drum. You got to know God's promises, man. You have to know what he's promised you or you can't stand on them. When you're going into your own Egypt and you're tempted to, you know, you're not singing with Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. You're grabbing the wheel. Okay. What, how are you going to get yourself out of that foolishness? How are you going to think your way out of that? How are you, how are you going to pray through that? You've got to know God's promises. Because if Abram would have stopped and took a beat and just thought logically, okay, God said he's going to bless those that bless me, he's going to curse those that curse me. So just he could have stopped there. Like, okay, well, I can go into Egypt. If they mess with me, God's going to mess with them. Done deal. But, but it's, it's more ironclad than that because he said, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Okay? So... Abram should have known, like, God's got his hand of protection on me, man. I, nobody really can, can do much to me, not because I'm tough or I can talk my way out of stuff, but because of him, right? And so <clears throat> the other thing I want to make sure we draw out of this, and it's, it's, it, it again should push our focus towards the gospel. We are going to see as we work through the book of Genesis, and really the whole Bible, <laughs> Uh, that even the great heroes of the faith leave us longing for something better. And that is the part of the point. That's part of why I believe God in his great wisdom did not sanitize the scriptures so that we don't know about Abram in Egypt or we don't know about uh, Jacob being a deceiver or we don't know about Joseph being haughty when he was young or Moses being a murderer or David being a murderer. Go, go through and pick all the big Bible heroes and really take a look at them. What you end up with is, is left very wanting for a hero that you could trust fully and completely. You can't. And so part of the narrative unfolding is God showing us in a grand sweeping way. Like, here's, an ex- here's just one example of Abram. If you just stop there, you might be like, well, I don't know, maybe there could, maybe there could be a a a perfect savior just in a man. But then you see Isaac screw up and you see Jacob screw up and you see Judah screw up and you see Joseph screw up and you see Moses mess up and, 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 and gone and on and on and on. And you're left wanting, you're left wanting somebody that can come along and actually do this all the way. And you're supposed to be left wanting for someone to come and to do this all the way, to do it perfectly. And then he does. There's a little baby born in Bethlehem who was promised And he grows into an undeniable force of the will of God, of the redemptive will of God. He does everything perfectly. He never sins once. Blows everybody away. Shocks them with his balance of wisdom and truth, but love and grace. He comes and does it perfectly. He's the one they were always waiting for. He's the one we always needed. And so even in the imperfection of the Bible stories, from an, almost from an opposite direction, we're being shown the need we have as a human race for the good news of the gospel. Praise God. That's Genesis 12. We're going to keep going. You guys excited to work through Genesis? I am. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much. For Genesis chapter 12, thank you 
that you included Abram's story in your scriptures. Uh, Thank you that we can see, Lord, um, it's not like other myths. It's not like other stories of of heroes. It's Abram Abram messed up, and and he's not done messing up yet, and and yet, Lord, you're faithful to him. Thank you, Lord, we, we can tell that you could... Just the way you spoke to Abram at the beginning of Genesis 12, it shows us, it tells us that you can see beyond what we are right now to what we will be by your strength and power and the shaping of your hand. Thank you that your sight is longer than ours, that your perspective is wider than ours. Thank you, Lord, that when we trust what you have said, what you have said, not what we think you said, or what we wish you would have said, but when we trust what you have said, we will not be disappointed. Thank you, Lord, that we can rest in that, even as, even as all the rest of what's around us rages, as, as, as things are seen chaotic on so many levels, Lord, we can stand in the safety of your promises. Thank you, Lord. We stand today as those who were blessed through the faith of Abraham, through the lineage of Abraham. Thank you. We stand today a part of the family of God because you chose Abram and you called him out of Ur of the Chaldees into the land of Canaan. You called him to trust you even without all the details. You called him to trust you even though he was way too old to be having a kid. You called him to trust you that when you said it would be, it would be. And then you gave him the strength to to trust you, and you counted that faith as righteousness, and you begin to show us that this whole thing, all, all the way through, it was always about faith and trusting you. It wasn't about us trying to obey perfectly to earn relationship with you. We never, ever, ever could have pulled that off. I also thank you, Lord, for the reminder, and we're going to have so many more as we study this book together, but the reminder to build altars. I ask God that that, would, that idea would strike a chord in the heart of every person within the sound of my voice. God, may we all do better at stopping to memorialize and to commemorate and to make much of. Lord, we should make much of the clear points in our lives where you are faithful, where you speak to us, where you lead us and guide us, where you deliver us, where you do miracles on our behalf. We are a fickle people and easily distracted, but help us, Lord, to see the beauty of being able to even pass those accounts on to those that are coming behind us in the faith. Help us do that well, Lord. We love you, and we worship you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.